ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com 
mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts, heel inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. Coming up next, we have a father and son duo. The two of them run us through a bit of their careers, search and rescue cases, lessons learned, but the great part about it is it's two generations worth of information, all rolled into one. It's incredible. So please welcome our next two guests, pilots for the United States Coast Guard, Terry Cross and Sean Cross. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got something uh, that I haven't had here before, and that's a father and son duo. Um, awesome. So totally stoked. I have Mr. Terry Cross and Mr. Sean Cross, father and son, both pilots in the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, Terry, we're going to start with you. Hello. Welcome to the show. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Sean, good to see you. Son of Terry. Got it. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? I'm terrific. All right. (laughs) Me too. I love it. I love it. It's a good way to start the day. All right. For me, I'm kind of finishing the day, but you guys, you're just kind of getting rolling. So it's all good. Sean, are you awake yet? Have you had your coffee? You good? I am. I I got it here. I'm uh, living the dream. All right. I like it. I like it. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, uh, if you guys don't mind, before we get too far into some of the rescues that you guys have done and some amazing background history that we're about to get, some knowledge is going to be dropped. I'm, I'm totally excited. Uh, but before we get that far, let me start with Terry. Terry, if you don't mind, would you give us a little background about you, a little history about you personally, how you got into the Coast Guard and how you became a pilot? Okay, I'll try to make this as short as possible because it's I'm, I'm seven, almost 75 years old, so it's a long story. Uh, you know what? I mean, hold on, ready? <laughs> uh, I, I've got time, so. <laughs> I grew up in Richmond, Indiana, was looking for a way to for uh, a young boy to go to school, for a young boy who had no money to go to school, uh, applied, applied to the Coast Guard Academy, and much to my surprise, they let me in. Uh, I didn't really know a lot about the Coast Guard, uh, but I was happy to learn. 
and uh, graduated uh, from the academy in 1970, uh, was assigned to a ship out of Wilmington, North Carolina. And I still remember uh, on one of our deployments, uh, we, we did a search and rescue exercise with an HU-16E out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And uh, uh, when we were finished with that exercise, uh, the pilot of the aircraft came on and said, uh, great job, guys. Uh, we're going to fly back to East City. We'll stop by the O Club and have a cool one for you. And that started me thinking, I'm about to go try to hang on on this ship uh, for a month in the North Atlantic where it's going to be freezing and he's going back and having a, a beer. Uh, I, that <laughs> afternoon, I went down to my stateroom and wrote my request to go to flight school. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yep. <laughs> so uh, I, I went to flight school uh, over the course of my career. I've, I've been stationed at only two air stations, but each one twice. Uh, I, uh, I went to Cape Cod, uh, then out to San Francisco after a postgraduate tour, uh, then to headquarters, then back to Cape Cod, and then back to CO as the, uh, as the commanding officer. Uh, over that period of time, I flew four Coast Guard aircraft, an wow. HU-16E. Uh, I'd been flying that about uh, three years, and I was asked if I wanted to go to helicopter school. And I said, sure. So I got qualified in the H-52, uh, flew those two aircraft for the remainder of that tour and for the tour in San Francisco. Uh, after departing headquarters, I went back to Cape Cod and flew the HU-25. And then following that tour, I uh, became an H-3 pilot at Air Station San Francisco. I, I run some numbers last night, and it's pretty amazing. I had almost, almost exactly uh, half my time in fixed wing and half in helicopters. Wow, that's pretty good. And the rest of my rest of my Coast Guard career uh, was primarily in headquarters uh, with a command tour in D-17. Very nice, very nice. So I do need to plug that in and say you are retired Admiral Cross for those that uh, that don't know out there. So well done, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. I like that. Yeah, lots of lots of good stuff. So I, out of curiosity, Cape Cod, you were there twice. Uh, when the you said the H threes, the H threes were out there, or the H fifty twos. When I arrived at Cape Cod, we had and I, 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 I recollect my recollection is we had four HU sixteen Echoes, three H fifty twos, and three H threes. Oh wow! Okay, mix it right on. So side and, story about Cape Cod, and maybe you were there when this happened. So my dad. And I, I'm totally stoked I'm telling this story right now. I wish he was here that I could, you know, like that he could tell the story. But so my dad was a, he's a construction, steeples, domes, towers. He does restoration work, a ton of it, right? He came out because he got contracted to paint the lighthouse off Nantucket or one of the islands out there. And they needed a Coast Guard helicopter to get out there. Well, he brings a 50 foot ladder with him. Well, that does not fit in the helicopter. <laughs> So the guys went in and they like ratchet strapped it to the bottom of the helicopter to take off and then go fly out to the island. Were you by chance there for that? 
No. <laughs> All right. So then he can neither confirm nor deny that actually happened. <laughs> All right. Just checking. Nice. All right on. Uh, so now let, let me go to Sean. Sean, a little bit of background about you and how and why did you get in the Coast Guard? And I think that's important because, you know, like your dad's here. I mean, maybe it was him, but what, what happened to you? Well, I honestly, growing up, I, I really did. I, I thought my dad had the coolest job in the world. Um, and I, I was always a, uh, a big fan of the helicopter as a machine. I just always thought it was amazing growing up. Uh, I talked about it at my retirement. I had this little Lego helicopter set and, and that helicopter was like my most prized possession when I was a youngster. And uh, my dad came and landed the helicopter at the school one day. And uh, the next day, uh, the I was sick, but the class <laughs> had to... Uh, had to write thank you notes to uh, my dad. And uh, I was appalled at the low level of integrity that all these helicopter drawings had. My, I, took, uh, I took great <laughs> pride as a six-year-old drawing blueprint quality H52 pictures. And uh, that, that was like the center of my world. Um, it came time to to go to college when I was going to graduate. And I actually applied to uh, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, and the Coast Guard Academy. And uh, I was really heavily leaning towards Air Force and Navy for really wrong reasons. I, I, I was kind of enamored that uh, uh, I might have an opportunity to, to play some sports maybe and, and do some things at the, uh, at the Naval Academy. And I still remember my, my dad one night, and I'm, I'm appreciative of this to this day, sat me down and said, hey, I don't care where you go. It's your life. Figure it out. But here, here's a couple of data points you might want to put into your calculus there. And, uh, you know, he's like, hey, maybe you don't care now, but if you have a wife and some kids, how does being on a big gray boat for 12 months sound to you? And, you know, gave me some of the, the, the real world examples of the services and, uh, Again, I've been with the, the Navy and the Air Force at, at other places, and I'm totally happy there's guys that want to do that. But most of those uh, deployments and trips have been Coast Guard appreciation tours. I uh, <laughs> am so appreciative that he, uh, you know, grabbed me and had that discussion with me. So uh, I ended up uh, picking the Coast Guard Academy. And again, great decision. Uh, class in 1994. Uh, I went to the Coast Guard Cutter Active out of uh, the uh, academy and a uh, great boat, totally embraced that I wanted to go to flight school. Uh, I, I still remember nice. this. I, similar to my dad, I was, uh, I was on watch at like the, the uh, 8 to 12. I got off watch. We came up on a fishing vessel and they, uh, they asked me to do the boarding and I went and did the boarding and there were only two of us that were night quad. So I got done with the boarding and then I had the four to eights in the morning. So I was a uh, watch boarding watch. And uh, I finally got to hit the rack after the, after eight o'clock. And I still remember the phone rang and I I'm sure I answered it like, hello. And with in a, in a, in a, angry voice and it was my exo uh eric rosenberg great guy and he's like hey i just got a mrsac call and they want to know if you want to go to flight school early and i was like let me think about that for a second yes 
and, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I actually got off the ship. It, it was amazing. I, I laughed. I, I walked by the captain's cabin one day and it sounded like a baseball trade. Uh, he was talking to the detailer and it was like, I'll give you cross for <laughs> Lieutenant JG Smith and a player to be named later. So I, uh, I got off the ship uh, about six months early and got to flight school in January of uh, 96, about six months ahead of a majority of the people in my class who didn't go till the summer. Um, so yeah, I went through flight school, uh, awesome experience, was, was actually uh, in San Diego celebrating a retirement with a bunch of guys I went to flight school with this weekend. And uh, oh, fantastic. my operational units were... Uh, Clearwater, Florida, a uh, great place to start, you know, as a 25, 26 year old flying around the Caribbean, deploying, chasing drug runners and migrant boats and uh, flying into hurricanes and, uh, you know, everything I wanted. Uh, the only thing I didn't get down there was really nasty weather, except for the hurricanes. Uh, I got picked up for the aeronautical engineering program. That's the thing I think that is the difference. My dad was an operator and I went the engineering route. And again, that, that fascination with the helicopter as a machine. And uh, I just loved working with the guys on the hangar deck. I loved ground turns and test flying and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so got picked up for that. Went to Cape Cod, probably my favorite operational tour. Just when the SAR alarm went off there, you were going to do something real. Yeah. Um, uh, just really enjoyed it there. And it was my third tour because I'd been a dependent twice with my dad. So got to do cool things like coach with my high school lacrosse coach at the high school. And, uh, I lived literally a hundred yards from the house I grew up in as a youngster. So, uh, oh, very cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, Similar, went to Purdue, like uh, my dad, uh, to the Craner one-year MBA program. I went back to headquarters, uh, went to Sector San Diego as the uh, EO and had a unique uh, opportunity to be the Sector EO. That's when we were going through the logistics transformation that moved the, the surface fleet to the Coast Guard aviation model. Right. Oh, uh, I remember then, that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I got into boats and, uh, and civil engineering and all that kind of stuff, which was a great opportunity for me. Uh, had a great ops boss there, uh, Commander uh, Yogi Pierce, and who was really good to me and, and really brought me over, understood uh, how senior officers need to broaden themselves. So brought me along to a lot of DOD and DHS uh meetings and missions to try to get that under my belt while I was there in San Diego as far as DHS and working together and cooperation was the best I ever saw it in the Coast Guard uh, great partnerships and great uh, uh, working together and integrated operations there and then uh, went to Elizabeth City as the XO of the air station and then uh, finished up my operational tour at uh, tours at uh, Traverse City as the uh, CO. Nice. And I assume retired as a captain. Retired as a captain, uh, was uh, on, sir. chief of search and rescue at D-13. Uh, now they call it uh, incident management, uh, but ran uh, the search and rescue program and up there for uh, 
Admiral Gromlich, Admiral Butt, and Admiral Troop. And uh, really a highlight of that tour besides the aviation uh, portion was uh, got in really uh, deep with the surfmen up there. That was a community I, I was familiar with, but hadn't spent a lot of time with and uh, really, really impressed with that group. Uh, really reminded me of us as aviation types. Uh, they have to be very proficient at their craft, which requires a lot of practice uh, and, is, and is difficult and, and takes more time than, than becoming an aircraft commander to become a surfman but loved uh, getting underway with those guys up in the Pacific Northwest and seeing what they do. And uh, to me, last point, those guys are really the heart of the service. That's where the origins of the U.S. Life Saving Service. And uh, one of the things I always talked about with those guys is most of the, the uh, Higgins boat coxswains of World War II came from our, our group of surfmen in the Coast Guard. And I always thought that was a really cool uh, legacy of theirs. Uh, to, to talk about. So that's it. I'll be quiet. That's, that's, ah, you're good. No, that's great. That's great. I actually, I didn't, I didn't know that, that uh, like during the war that they, uh, it was the coxswains and the surfmen that, that went over to drive those. That's, that's interesting. And for everybody that doesn't know the, uh, the coxswain, the surfmen that we're talking about, um, they drive the 47 boats that, and they go into some gnarly waves. It was one of the bonuses that like me being in Humboldt Bay and going through advanced swimmer school up there in uh, Astoria, we were able to ride them and get in some, some pretty big surf. Uh, hats off to those guys for what they go through as well. I'm all about it. So right on. That's cool. Well, uh, Terry, let me bounce back to you real quick. So when you got in the Coast Guard by chance, I know it's been a, it's been a hot minute, but I'm going to ask anyway, do you remember your very first SAR case in the Coast Guard? Well, I do. Uh, but it's not a not a it's, it was not a pretty case. Uh, okay. Do you want me to talk about that? It's that was going to be up to you, but uh... okay. Well, I'll do it quickly because it's it was it's actually it was kind of a downer. Most of the work that the HU-16s did out of Cape Cod involved uh, fisheries law enforcement. You might recall we had a, a a twelve mile limit then, not a two hundred mile limit, and we were always chasing uh, foreigners uh, away from the line and occasionally making a seizure. Uh, we also did uh, a lot of pollution patrols uh, where we would carry uh, actually a Navy guy who had this gizmo where he could uh, tell the temperature of the water down to depths, which was probably classified at the time. And that all went to gather uh, data for Navy in the submarines. So we were coming back from one of those flights and got a call about a boat sinking in Narragansett Bay. And, uh, and, and we actually weren't that far from scene, but by, by the time we got there, that boat had been sunk for well over an hour, maybe a couple of hours. And what we came upon were a large number of floating life vests with people in them. I don't think there was one survivor from that boat. And as it turned out, the owner of the boat uh, was a neighbor of my wife's parents. Uh, so it, was, it was just a sad day all around. And if you don't want to talk about this in your cast, it's okay. It was a real no, I, 
I, I, you know what? I'm okay with it. And you know why I'm okay with it is because it, so it sets the stage for a couple of things. One is your very first SAR case. We all have it. And, and most of us remember our very first case. It's like that, maybe a first girlfriend, we'll call it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can't go good. with it. <laughs> all right. Yeah, no, no, no. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's one of those things like it, it's happened and, and now you're like, wow, what did I just get myself into? Or wow, what did I just get myself into? So it's either super exciting or it's, it's that, that realization moment of like, Oh man, this, this is for real. Like people live and people die if, if I, if we don't do our job right. So it's kind of an interesting perspective. So um, I'm sorry that happened for your very first one. Well, it, uh, it was probably one of the things that also motiv- motivated me to uh, uh, to want to give helicopters a try when I was given the opportunity. And I, I neglected to mention that there were actually Coast Guard helicopters on scene picking these poor folks out of the water. That's right, because at the time we could land in the water and then air like water taxi up to them. Is that is that what they were doing? Uh, you know what? Uh, that must have been part. I, I don't recall, to be honest with you. Okay. And I recall seeing the only thing I recollect was mostly H3s. So they, and it wasn't a really rough day. So they probably could have done that uh, platform pickups. Uh, but I don't recall. Uh, so it's a uh, bummer. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. What about this? The second one? Do you remember the second one? Was that a good turnout? I don't remember the second one. Uh, see? <laughs> see, nobody remembers the second one. You always remember the first. What about my favorite SAR case? Okay, all right, go to your favorite SAR case, minus the awards, because those we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, I didn't get an award for this. Uh, my favorite SAR case occurred after a long day of disappointing. I'm at Air Station San Francisco, first tour, uh, flying an H-52. Uh, had about three cases that put about six hours on us and uh, didn't really have any success. Then we're called back to the air station uh, for a kind of an unusual case. Uh, and, and the case essentially was this. Uh, a young boy, uh, his parents had bought him a rubber boat of some sort and he was down uh, uh, south of uh, uh, the uh, the Bay, not the Bay Bridge, but the uh, the Long Bridge. Uh, bu- 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 Oakland, um, the Oakland Bridge. No, the one south of that. Uh, San Mateo del Barton Bridge. Dumb- Actually, down not too far from where we lived on, on my second tour there in, in, in a, one of the sloughs there, Steinberger Slough, as I recall the name of it was. So what happened, this boy was paddling around, apparently without a lot of supervision. I think he was probably between 10, 11, 12, and then the tide went out. So the boy then got out of the boat. I guess he was going to walk to shore. The problem was he, uh, he slipped up to his waist in mud. Uh, and then he... <laughs> People saw him and uh, they called the, uh, the fire department, the police department, probably the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> no, 
No, nobody could figure out how to get this kid out of the mud. And I don't know who, but somebody called the Coast Guard. So our, our mission was to go down there and see if we could pull this boy out. Now, by this time, he's been in the water, about, you know, 60 degree water for a long time. And the tide's coming in. So if the cold doesn't get him, the tide will. And we fly down there. It's still uh, light. Uh, made an approach over some really high power lines that, that uh, go along the, uh, the western uh, portion of the peninsula there. We get on scene. We really weren't sure what to do. But the thing that you couldn't help but notice uh, was this, this boy's parents were there. The mother was sobbing uncontrollably. Dad was doing his best to say, thing, you know, things are going to be okay now. And he, he didn't know that at all. So yeah. we, we went through our options of how we might approach this. Uh, this is before rescue swimmers, by the way. And uh, we said, well, why don't we, why don't we try the easiest thing first? And uh, my, the flight mech, who was also an EMT, he, he, he lowered the sling down, was careful to make sure the young boy put the sling on correctly and uh, took a strain and boy popped right out. <laughs> we, we brought him into the helicopter uh, and then all of a sudden I hear nothing but muffled sound. So I quickly turn around. I guess it would have been this way. And this boy is clutching our flight mech, uh, I think he knew he'd just been saved. And uh, so they, they finally, we, you know, that ceased and we secured the helicopter and then uh, concluded that we could air taxi over to a flat spot there. And I, I mentioned earlier, there were fire trucks there, there were police cars there, sheriffs were there. Everybody except the Starship Enterprise. And um, <laughs> they were busy. <laughs> and so we had to get them to move back a little bit. Uh, but then uh, uh, so we went down, we lowered the helicopter. There was also an ambulance there. And I'm looking at this mother. Now she has totally lost it, but not because she's sad, but because yeah. of the, how joyful she was. And she's, she was just going like this and thanking us. And, okay, the boy got out. He's walking. Uh, uh, to the ambulance and she looks right well I think it's right at me it could have been the co-pilot I guess and she uh, she gives me kind of a salute and I gave her a salute back and she lost it again <laughs> <laughs> that's that was, wonderful it's the most joyful search and rescue case I ever had and it wasn't in terms of degree of difficulty it was a one, but, uh, but you got to see up close and personal the results of your effort, the Coast Guard's effort. Heck yeah. See, ah, that's, I love, nobody hears these stories. This is why I love doing this. Like I've There's never heard that story. I'm here where they've heard them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one or two guys that might've heard it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> But I love that. That's that is amazing. Like, in, like how, you can't even make that up. I love the idea. Just send the straw down. Hey, kid, get in and then um, pop right up. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate the sound effects too. <laughs> oh, well done, sir. Well done. 
All right, Sean, I, I got to come to you. I got I to ask the same question. Do you remember your very first star case? Mine, uh, mine was ugly too, but it was more personally ugly. So yeah, I was at Air Station Clearwater and we launched in the middle of the night to uh, head up to the Jacksonville area. And uh, I was with a good friend, uh, Andy Eriks, who I ended up being stationed with. He's running uh, CG 711 right now. Went to grad school with him and did my first tour. And, uh, you know, they instill in you as a youngster when you're going through ATC Mobile as a co-pilot, your big thing is you got to be able to program the search into the into the computer to, to, to go do the search. And uh, they pound that, pound that, pound that into you. You got to know how the flight control computer works. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I think I refer to it as like idiot circus boy. You know, I'm fired up. It's my first SAR case. We're launching <laughs> and we got to fly from Clearwater across the state of Florida. And, uh, you know, we get airborne, check out with the tower. And I'm like, got to get that search into the computer. And I'm, Heads down, belting away on the thing. And uh, probably about four minutes later, Andy looks over at me and he's like, hey, Sean, I I know we talked. This is your first uh, night of duty and your first SAR case. Uh, we'll get to the search action plan there, but I could really use some help navigating across the state of Florida here. And, uh, you know, just needed to needed a reset for myself. And, uh, and you know, uh, I'll, I'll be humble and say I was pumped up and, uh you know, thought I was doing the right thing. And in reality, my priorities were all out of whack. And uh, Andy set that for me and uh, and I appreciated it. And it, it taught me a lesson. Um, and then my first, I, I just tell this story because I think it's uh, it, it, it tells a lot about the guy, first of all, and also is kind of funny. But, um, you know, I went through and I think I was a first pilot and I had duty with a guy named Andy Delgado, a great guy. I don't know. I love Andy Delgado. Kodiak. (laughs) I totally uh, (laughs) love that guy. (laughs) Well, I loved him. I loved him too. And uh, he, he taught me a lot. And uh, Andy was a, Andy was a fixer. You know, if if you're a, if you're a uh, Pulp Fiction fan, Andy was the wolf as far as I was concerned. We would go down (laughs) on op bat deployments and the air conditioner would be broke and the, fuel truck would be broke and the car to get back and forth to the airport would be broke. And 24 hours in, Andy would have all that stuff running like a top. So the SAR alarm goes off and uh, I go and meet Andy in the ops center. And uh, and uh, it sounds like a pretty benign case. We're going to do, go do a medevac off a fishing boat offshore. And uh, Andy's like, hey, Cross, what do, you, what do you think? You ready for the right seat? And I was like, yes, sir. And he's like, tell you what, I'll flip you for it. And he flipped the coin. He's like, call it. And I call tails and it lands heads. So I'm sure I pouted the whole way out to the airplane, having lost the coin toss. And uh, we got to the we got to the helicopter and Andy's like, crosser, take the take the right seat. So I uh, I took the right seat. And I remember that was my uh, my first hoist, op- my first operational hoist. And I appreciated Andy uh, giving that to me. So, um, and, and as I recall, it went well. The thing that stinks is I, I have a printout of my Almas uh, records. And unfortunately, early on, it only lists the pilot and the co-pilot, which is also what's in my logbook. And it wasn't until like, I think my tour in San Diego, where they started putting uh, yeah. the whole crew on it. So I'm, yeah. I'm bummed. I, 
I have this feeling that Matt Moyer was my flight mech on that flight, but I, I can't recall. And I, uh, so that's another lesson learned for all the youngsters. The best log book I've ever read is Stu Graham, Coast Guard Helicopter Pilot 2. He either treated his logbook like a diary at the time, or he went back and redid it. But he's got everything about like every cool flight he did in his logbook. It's awesome. So you youngsters out there, put a lot of information in because it's hard when you're an old guy to piece some of this back together. Yeah, um, uh, totally. <laughs> my my dad's heard this case and, and I think he has one too, but my, probably my favorite case. And again, I didn't get an award for it, but it was the case where it really came to me that Sean, you're, you're, you've, you've got this aircraft commander thing figured out. You've been challenged today and, and, and you, you met challenges head on, made good decisions for your crew and, and, and got the mission done. And I, I looked in my logbook. It was the fishing vessel Karen Lynn, and it was on 18 February 2003. And I was with a young guy, Chris Placoon, and they were taken on water about 100 miles east northeast of Provincetown. It was a 41 foot fishing vessel. It was in the snowstorm in the winter. Uh, it was one of those. Uh, get a waiver from the CO to take off because the weather's bad. Um, I was concerned about going directly to scene because the ceilings were so low, we, we couldn't really see and going to the north, northwest out of Otis, the air base there, uh, there's some elevation. So we actually took the back course of the ILS to the south because we knew we could stay low and went all the way around Cape Cod to get to these guys. We took, we maxed out on gas. Um, we got out there and uh, the fishing vessel wasn't there. Uh, of so course I, not. Why, why would it be at that location? <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we got the fishing vessel on the radio. They had not heard a helicopter, could not see us. And we asked them to give us their uh, position again. And they gave us the exact same position down to the third decimal place. And we're like, there's something wrong with your GPS. So I don't know if you remember on the old H60J, we could, uh, we could bring up radio, radio bearings on the MFD. So we asked them to do long counts on the radio and then you could press a button and it would put those, uh, those radials down on the screen. So we flew around in like a big five mile circle and had them do long counts until we had like three lines that crossed. And then we went there. Uh, wow. We got there and we still didn't see them. So we started an expanding square search from them. And on like the third leg, the swimmer's like, I got them. So we, uh, we found them and uh, it was like 20 foot seas. It was blowing pretty good. It was snowing. And then all of a sudden we lose comms and our flight mech looks back and we've got no HF antenna. Um, so we were concerned about that. So we started making call outs on uh, 243 and we got some airliners going into Logan Airport. And we asked them if they would call the tower and call this number and tell our base that we were doing okay out here. And oh, if you can get the guy behind you, 
have him call us and we'll keep doing this until we're done because we really don't need we're, we're okay and we're doing good work out here so just help us um so what we did we, uh, that's crazy <laughs> that's that's like awesome <laughs> so we uh a 41 foot boat and 20 foot seas is is kind of interesting and I had not been to Ahars at that point, but my co-pilot, Chris Clacoon, had been like one of a guy was supposed to go and got injured in the softball game on Friday. And they're like, Clacoon, can you go to Ahars? So they sent him to Ahars. So the whole way out there, we can tell the seas are pretty big. So he's giving me Ahars 101 from the left seat. Like, this is what I'm going to do in the left seat. And this is what you need to be prepared for. I'm going to call the waves and count them down for you. So you know when the Stern's going to come up. And so he gave me Ahars 101 while we were going out there. And then uh, we went out and we uh, we dropped pumps to the boat. I will admit we uh, we knocked a couple of antennas off the boat uh, when the uh, hoist cable caught the end of them as we were dropping off. But uh, we got them two pumps and uh, they lived to uh, see another day. And we got home. So, uh, like I said, just faced with a lot of issues. And, uh, that was my case where I figured out, I, I, I think I've figured out this, this aircraft commander thing and I can handle this. So anyway, <laughs> fishing vessel, Karen Lynn. Wow. What a case. Oh my gosh. I, so like, there's so much of that. I want to debrief right now because there's so many good ideas that come out of that. You have a way to find, do a direction finding, go to a spot, like after you get three lines and, and then you're expanding square. For those that don't know that, it's start in the middle and then you just do squares in like getting bigger and bigger and bigger to, to try to find where they're at. And then when you lose, all right, so on the, on the black or the eight, Jayhawk, you have uh, an HF antenna that runs down the side. That's what we're talking about, doing HF radio calls. Well, if that falls off, the fact you're calling every airline on their way in, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> Got to think outside the box, just saying, just saying. Yeah, and we didn't have a Falcon cover because of the weather. They had deployed up to, like, Syracuse, New York or something where the weather was good. So we didn't have fixed-wing cover that we would have usually had. So the HF antenna was pretty important. So, anyway. <laughs> I can imagine the pilot sitting in, like, some 777 coming into Bologna and be like, who is this? <laughs> Coast Guard? <laughs> You're 20 feet off the water and what? <laughs> you want me to call who? <laughs> oh, gosh. I freaking love it. The, the thing that was amazing was they, they did everything we asked. They relayed to the tower and then they relayed to the guy. The tower was helping relay to the guys behind them. And we're like, we kind of have to check in like every 15 minutes. So if you could help us with that, that would be good. And they they did, which was awesome. So they're like, anyway. Oh, we got something to do up here other than land a big plane. That's cool. <laughs> oh, that is incredible. I like that. I like that a lot. All right, man, you guys, oh, this is the way to get this started. I'm, I'm like jonesing right now. This is great. Terry, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to you right now. I would like to actually go over uh, two other ones that you had, uh, both, I believe, out of San Francisco. And you got an award for both of them, um, which I'm going to read here in a second. 
And then if you can remember what happened on those cases, I would love to hear those too. Is that cool with you? Absolutely. All right, here we go. So this one right here, uh, you earned in 1979. It's like, I, I'm gonna share my age right here and tell you like, I, I think I was eight months old at this point in my life. This is- I bet you were cute. Yeah, I was adorable. I, I just asked my mom. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right. So here it is. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Combination Medal to Lieutenant Terry Michael Cross, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Cross is cited for meritorious achievement in aerial flight on the night of 28 January 1979 while serving as co-pilot of Coast Guard H-52 helicopter 1374 engaged in a rescue from the Berkeley Hills of a woman who was severely injured when her car careened 400 feet down a vertical embankment coming to rest in nearly inaccessible gorge between two ridges. With the aircraft encountering turbulence and downdrafts of a magnitude to have caused the pilot to have abandoned his first approach, Lieutenant Cross provided continuous relative position information, which enabled the pilot to maneuver a safely in a stable hover at 1,600 foot level in the gorge surrounded by high ridges and crossed by power lines with the scene marked only by faint lights of the ground rescue party. Lieutenant Cross was able to provide significant illumination on the surrounding terrain to enable the pilot to hover the helicopter with rotor blades only 20 feet from the near vertical surface of the steep embankment directly in front of the aircraft. Skillfully positioning the night sun searchlight on the ridges to the helicopter's left, Lieutenant Cross simultaneously operated the controllable landing light to provide the pilot with a reference to the ridge line to his right. During the difficult approach, hampered by the downdrafts, darkness, and large amounts of debris generated by the rotowash downwash, Lieutenant Cross provided significant positioning information and ground illumination to enable the pilot to persist and successfully complete the difficult hoist. Lieutenant Cross, initiative, perseverance, and outstanding performance of his co-pilot duties contributed to the saving of the life of this seriously injured woman. His sound judgment, attention to detail, and unwavering devotion to duty are keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Yeah. Well, that's uh, award number one, Mr. Terry. Well done, sir. So you have a lady who drove or drove a car 600 feet or fell, rolled off a cliff 600 feet. You got other medical and, and firefighters and other people there on scene and they call you guys. Not until they figured out they couldn't do it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Of course not. That's that's kind of how it. Yeah. Hey, let's go wait the last very the very last yeah, minute. That's it. Lot, it would have been a lot easier in the daylight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Had you just called me twelve hours ago, it would have been perfect. <laughs> so what 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 was it like when you guys got on scene? Well, I'll remember what I can. First of all, the aircraft commander was a fellow named Dallas Schmidt. He's a very experienced aviator who was serving as the operations officer uh, at the time. And uh, so there was never really, and Dallas is a pretty confident guy. We, 
we, we tried to uh, get as much information as we could. It was really, really hard to, to actually see much below us until we, until we got there. And, and then we, we kind of found our place, ourselves in a really very, very tight place. Hence all the, uh, you know, using the light and, 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 and both of us were just forever going, you know, two feet left, two feet right. Uh, it was really very, very tight. And we, I don't recall having a lot of buffeting once we got, you know, once we got down into a, into a stable hover. Um, but then I, you were a rescue swimmer, so I'm sure you've had some of these. Then you you know you get the you, you get the litter down. Uh, I'm pretty sure we were using the litter, and you think maybe it'll take you know four or five minutes for them to get this lady and put her in the litter, and then uh, you know like 15 minutes later you're going, are you guys still down there? I mean, <laughs> this is not oh, an yeah. easy place. this is not an easy place for us to be, and. Uh, <laughs> So let me emphasize something real quick, because this is a little bit back in the day, 1979. So you guys didn't have the, the like the auto hover we have today and and the great like you guys were manually holding that sucker in a hover. Yeah, that's awesome. We were, we were about one generation of hell those uh, helicopters that you see on mesh. I mean, yeah, we, we did have uh, stabilization. So we. Uh, uh, that was as a huge plus having the uh, stable uh, stabilization equipment. But uh, once again, in, in, it's interesting. You pick up two cases where I couldn't see the wall, uh, um, but it was it was really tight. In fact, I was a little surprised that uh, Dallas didn't get a DFC because the case was, in my view, every bit as challenging as the. Uh, as the case up in the in the hills around Napa, uh, in some cases maybe more so because there were more there were more hard things to hit as opposed to little tree limbs. So uh, it, it was just a very very difficult case. Dallas did a wonderful job, and I think we were both glad when we uh, when we got that that lady aboard and and were able to to fly out of that situation that that we were in. Those Out of curiosity, kind of uh, when you went into that gorge, did you have, were you able to fly away as in forward flight or did you have to back the helicopter up to get out of there? Or do you remember? No, we, uh, we, we kind of very carefully uh, descended into the area, uh, mostly in forward flight. But as you know, uh, that we might've been going forward five knots or so. So we were, yeah. We we had we had actually we had issues all around us. I mean, I was almost as worried about the tail rotor as I was the main rotor. So it was just really tight in there. And uh, um, I, I I I heard from Dallas Schmidt here fairly recently, and I I never realized how scared he was. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? That, that's a good pilot. That's a good PIC right there. You don't even know he's scared. Like, I, I got this. Yeah, we, we got this. Until you don't. 
You know, what? Uh, just for the record, I don't want to know how scared my pilot is up front. Okay, I just I want to know everything's going to be perfect. All right. Well, Sean actually initiated the uh, the email exchange for Dallas and I, and uh, so I, I I appreciated that. Well was, done, uh, Sean. Yeah, uh, and that's when he kind of uh, opened up and said, <laughs> "I'm really glad you were there because I was scared. <laughs> I'm not sure how I was supposed to help." Now, different from the other case, we were both aircraft commanders on, on, on that flight. Got it. So the, the other case you're referring to is the Napa case, which is yeah. one that you were in an air medal on. And so I, it, I'm going to jump right into that one right now, if, that, if that's okay, because then we can have a good comparison between the two. And I say sure. that, uh, you know what, let me get into it and then I'll, I'll explain why. So then yeah. this in particular rescue was kind of cool because, well, kind of cool. It was kind of interesting because it made actually a lot of uh, newspaper headlines. You know, um, some of them came out, crash, survivor story. And it's two guys that were in a small plane um, that ended up crashing into a hillside. Uh, they were there for... 48 hours before, like this article says right here, they were airlifted by the Coast Guard helicopter on Saturday morning. Um, there are there are probably seven or eight articles on this just to, you know, talk about this guy's story. Just that the Coast Guard came in and saved him 48 hours later. So uh, it's it's amazing to, you know, one, that those guys survived that long, especially after having such a, an accident. Um, but let me let me get into it. I'll, I'll read this right out of the, the award right up. Citation to accompany the award of the Air Medal to Lieutenant Terry M. Cross, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Cross is cited for meritorious achievement in aerial flight on the evening of 22 October 1977 while serving as co-pilot on Coast Guard H-52-1355, engaged in a perilous rescue of two victims of a plane crash near Napa, California. Dispatched from Air Station San Francisco, Lieutenant Cross maintained communications while the helicopter was en route to the crash site. Upon arrival on scene, the pilot executed a night landing in a dry lake bed near the crash, where Lieutenant Cross coordinated a plan of action with rescue personnel that were already on scene. After the course of action was determined, the helicopter was flown to the crash area and a night hoist was executed to rescue the first victim. The survivor was flown to a nearby hospital. The helicopter was refueled and returned to the scene to attempt a second, more hazardous rescue. The second victim hoist was hampered, in a, hampered by steep terrain, dense underbrush, and the close proximity to the redwood trees, which prevented the helicopter from hovering above the trees with the litter on the ground. Since the patient had been exposed to the elements for over 55 hours, the pilot elected to reduce the margin of safety to the minimum and lower the aircraft into a small clearing surrounded by the towering redwoods to accomplish the rescue. As the helicopter descended, Lieutenant Cross provided precise advisories to the pilot as branches from the trees were within inches of the rotors. During this period, Lieutenant Cross also monitored fuel consumption of the aircraft while the second victim was hoisted. When the hapless man was safely on board, Lieutenant Cross advised the pilot that there was enough fuel to transport the victim to the hospital. After the man was delivered to the awaiting medical authorities, the aircraft was flown to Napa Airport, landed with 10 minutes of fuel left. 
Lieutenant Gross's innovative actions, expert aeronautical skills, and valor throughout the mission resulted in a successful rescue of two men. His courage, sound judgment, and unwavering devotion to duty are most heartily commended in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Terry, wow! Within inches of trees, inches! Actually, we learned later we got a little closer than that. So you probably took a couple treetops off is what I, we might be and off the record. We, we took a couple treetops. Yeah. When we got back to San Francisco, we had some, uh, some green stains on the uh, uh, leading edges of the, of the rotor blades. So uh, I'm pretty sure that came from trees. <laughs> Nothing a case of beer can't fix. <laughs> oh my gosh. So two guys, land into the mountain you guys have to go out there at night is it a similar scenario where they should have called you earlier well it was given they were there for two two days yeah that would have been helpful <laughs> good lord wow so yeah. run us through it if you don't mind like getting on scene what okay. what did you guys uh, see first, yeah first of all I, I mentioned i was an aircraft commander in the later case but i had only been aboard uh, the air station for I don't know, maybe six weeks and coming out of coming from grad school down the mobile. I hadn't upgraded to AC yet. So so I'm 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 the first pilot and, and we we get launched up there. Um, we didn't really have a lot of useful information. Essentially, it was uh, get airborne and fly toward this mountain in the dark, <laughs> which <laughs> Which didn't sound so great to me. Yeah, that that is not. Um, how about no? <laughs> uh, and uh, so we 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 landed and we got some information that was not necessary. It was sort of useful, but it was like it's that mountain. That was that's essentially what our information uh, consisted of. So as we as we flew toward the mountain very carefully. Uh, we still we couldn't see anything, so uh, uh, I remember figuring out how to talk to these guys on the ground and had them shine some lights up. So that's okay. how we actually figured out about where the position was. And, and you know, well, you know, we're we're Coast Guard guys. We fly over the water, so we're right. fair, we're we've got some altitude here. And, and and we're hoping the helicopter works, <laughs> you, you know, at that altitude. <laughs> so we, so we, uh, yeah, Gordy, we, once we figured out where they were, uh, used some lights and talked with the guys on the ground about, are we over oh, the top of you now? And, um, and then just kind of settled down. Uh, the trees, uh, I think we later determined were about 140 feet tall. And as you know, we had a hundred foot of hoist cable. So yeah. we just kind of settled in, and uh, uh, as the as the citation said, I was I was just keeping us clear on on as best I could, especially on on the left side of the helicopter, and then looking over. And uh, Gordy was really just almost right in front, and his goal was not to move left or right, just maintain a maintain position, and. Uh, in, it's kind of interesting. I, uh, the, the first guy got up, and uh, that that was really the hardest hoist. 
as I recall, we were starting to get a little daylight by the time we uh, went back for the second guy. Um, now, for, for, for Gordy, that might have made it scarier for him to actually see what was out there. But <laughs> um, it, I, as I recall, it went, it went uh, quicker and, uh, uh, and, and we were fine. I don't, I don't think any of us realized we'd clipped any trees at all until we got back to the air station. You know what? Uh, Never even noticed it. It's kind of like a Blackhawk going through a couple of trees. I can either yeah. confirm, deny that I had the same, similar. <laughs> yeah, no, not saying it. <laughs> well, I think I, I think everybody everybody realized that. But uh, once again, these were the other thing is they're pine trees, and they're. I think yeah. we were hitting twigs, so I don't want to make this more. Uh, yeah, no, 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 right, 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 right. <laughs> really fun. But still, even like you're 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 putting the helicopter down that low and in an area like that to get the hoist in. You know, if you're talking trees that are, you know, 100 and 140 feet and you only have 100 feet of cable, you got to make up 40 feet. That's a lot. Like that, that's descending a lot into some trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the small clearing really was pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The problem with those the problem with those pine trees is they get bigger as you go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you take out the top of the tree, you're like, oh, that's okay. The the trunks get bigger. <laughs> wow. All right. So, so now that you had that one, and then you go to that the next one of the lady down the cliff, like you yeah. said, you got now you're dealing with rocks, cliff face you know, drop it into a, a ravine like that. I can, I can totally see the simile of that and, and, and how, like the feeling of that, that's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. I think well, we had two like that while I was there and I was the only guy on both of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Probably a good thing. Wow. Yeah. Well done, sir. Well done. That's pretty awesome. Whew. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was uh yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Well, my pleasure. All right, Sean, you're up, my friends. I, uh, I've got, I've got your award right here too, and it's this one. I like I said, I was reading over this one. I was like, wow, this is. Uh, so you actually, there were two articles that were written about this one. Um, uh, let's see, one. I don't remember which one it was in, but you actually there was a coast guard h65 that launched out of this out of san francisco and then you guys launched out of this out of san diego on dh60 well what what happened was the the 65 uh once we once we completed the case and we were stuck on the abraham lincoln they were they were out of bremerton washington and they were steaming home so they uh they came close aboard to San Francisco and the 65, you know, flew 10 miles offshore and grabbed the guy and brought him to the hospital. But they they weren't uh, they weren't part of the original uh, the original case, so to speak. They they, uh, they cleaned up, I would say. OK, well, then, then we're going to call it a good cleanup crew. Nice. Well done, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the only reason I bring that up is because they were they were part of the article that, that was uh, that yeah. sent to me. And it was it was pretty impressive. And then another article here that was uh, that was published for just what you guys did. And I'm just going to read a, a clip of it. But um, it was Commander Sean Cross, Lieutenant Simon Green, aviation maintenance technician, second class Jonathan 
Randolph, and then Randolph. aviation survival, yeah, uh, survival technician, third class, Robin Hamilton, uh, shown Hamilton. from right to left, received an air medal for the long range rescue. And the long range rescue, which we're going to get into in a second, is 750 nautical miles off California coast. That is a long way. And oh, by the way, the 860 does need to refuel, which you had mentioned the USS Abraham. So we're going to get into that too. So let me read the award. And then, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into the nitty gritty of this, this rescue because we got big seas. We've got a long range. All right, let's just get into it. Citation to accompany the award of the Air Medal to Commander Sean M. Cross, United States Coast Guard. Commander Cross is cited for meritorious achievement in aerial flight while serving as aircraft commander on Coast Guard Helicopter 6037 on 13 to 14 December 2008. Flying through the Pacific winter storm, he and his crew rescued a crewman suffering from a life-threatening head trauma aboard the marine vessel Marie Rickmers, approximately 600 nautical miles west of San Diego, California. Demonstrating exceptional professional expertise, Commander Cross planned this complex long-range rescue mission, directing the actions of his crew, the Marie Rickmers, and the USS Abraham Lincoln. He masterfully executed the first 285 nautical mile leg of the mission ending with the carrier controlled approach in night instrument conditions. The helicopter quickly refueled, embarked two U.S. Navy medical personnel, and flew an additional 250 miles to the Marie Rickmers, over 550 miles from San Diego on scene. Hovering at night in 30 knot winds and 15 to 20 foot seas, Commander Cross successfully executed two hoists, deployed the rescue swimmer and helicopter litter from a 100 foot altitude, avoiding numerous obstacles on the ship, pitching deck, including an 80 foot high cargo crane. When the patient was ready for extract, Commander Cross, despite poor visible references, was able to establish a, a stable hover to safely recover both the swimmer and the victim. Uh, turning the rescue helicopter eastward, Commander Cross led his crew another 250 nautical miles to land in night instrument flying conditions on a heaving carrier deck as white water broke over the ship's bow. By the time he had landed, Commander Cross had been awake for over 24 hours, flown 750 nautical miles, and logged seven hours of night flying time. His leadership, aeronautical skills, and heroism saved the life of this critical injured crewman. Commander Cross' courage, judgment, and devotion to duty in the face of hazardous flying conditions are heartily commended in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Holy smoke! John, this is crazy! When you wow. read that, the two guys I felt the worst about were the two Navy guys who had to come out and integrate <laughs> with a crew of four and not not know any of us, uh, you know, with a simple crew brief. And, hey, guys, we're uh, going to go do this. But uh, I don't know how those two Navy guys felt about uh, heading out with us, but uh, we appreciated their help. I, I don't know their names, but uh, I know they uh, they really uh, – the, the rescue swimmer – uh, Robin Hamilton, who was very competent and very good at his uh, his game, was was very happy. Those guys were there to to help in the back. 
Um, nice. Guy was not doing well when when we got him on board. So, all right, let, let's talk, let's talk range of the the H sixty for a second. The Jayhawk. So the Jayhawk can go uh, off the top of my head about 250, 300 miles offshore. Is that two hundred? The, the, the glossy brochure says the H sixty can go three hundred miles offshore and do a a fifteen minute hoist and and get home. Um, all, all of that with winds and, and what we had going on, we made a decision early on. We knew the guy was not ambulatory and we knew Robin was going to have to go down and, uh, and package him up. So we, we decided as a crew that we were not going to go, we, we were going to try not to go more than 250 miles. And uh, we used that as our go, no go. And we also knew we'd be making some money because the Abraham Lincoln was going to be speeding in our direction while we were doing that last leg and that hoist. So we knew as long as they were speeding toward us, we were going to make money on that. But we decided we weren't going to launch at more than 250 miles. So we were we were sitting in the in the crew lounge, actually. I think we'd bought some pizzas and we were watching a movie and the op center called and I knew the, the OS that called and, you know, he, I think the first call came in and they were about 800 miles offshore. And he's like, Hey, we, we got a medevac off a ship. It's 800 miles offshore. And I, I, I kind of jokingly said, well, call me back when they're closer. And I, I hung up the phone and, uh, I, I, I dialed him back and I was like, nah, what's going on? Talk to me. And, uh, so he told us about the Abraham Lincoln. They were down there because uh, there had been a fire on one of the carriers in San Diego, and they got sent down there with no aviation detachment, just the crew of the Abraham Lincoln uh, to do carrier calls for the flight school guys. So they were offshore, and the jet guys were flying out of North Island to get their carrier calls for their wings. So that's why they were there. And they had just finished, and they were actually set to go home when this happened. So they they got in touch with them. And uh, yeah, I got on the phone literally with, uh, I think his name was Jason Sparks. He was the ops boss on the Lincoln. And uh, he was like, what do you, what do you need? And I was sitting in my office and uh, had a couple of the guys in the office. And I, I think I sent you, I drew out this picture. I still have it in my uh, files of here's me, here's the Marie Rickmers and here's uh, the aircraft carrier. And I, <laughs> I had a little spreadsheet that I used to use that I, I had made up and kind of figured out the closure combined closure rate was about 40 knots. I think Abraham Lincoln was going 25 knots in those scenes and seas and uh, Marie Rickmers was going about 15 knots. And uh, I figured out a spot and I said, I need you to meet me at this spot in the ocean at this time. Uh, and I said, what else do you need for me? And, he said, nothing. What do you need from me? And I, I told him, we're probably going to need some medical guys if you got any. And they said they did. And I said, I'm going to need some gas. Uh, and uh, I've been up all day and uh, it's late. So if you got any food, I could probably use some box lunches for uh, part two of this. So uh, yeah, we worked all the math backwards and decided we needed to take off. I want to say we took off at like 1130-ish at night, something like that, and uh, maybe 1030-ish, and uh, started heading out. We asked for a cover from Sacramento, so those guys came down, and I uh, 
to this day, I haven't been able to have a beer with Todd Lytle. He was the AC on the, on the C-130, um, but I'd love to sit down with him and have a beer. But, um, you know, they got to us about halfway out because they were coming all the way from Sacramento and uh, just maintained comms between us and the carrier and kind of helped us get there. Um, we, we got out there. We, we established comms with the, the ship and uh, we shot a carrier controlled approach. So kind of like a PAR to the back of the carrier. So I'm not and, actually super uh, familiar with that. That is something that I've never done. I've never landed on the back of a carrier. I've never had that. Like that's just never happened in in all of my all of my time. So when you talk about that, is it is it just kind of like coming into a, a normal approach to a, a runway, or is it just a little different? It's it's like a PAR, a precision approach radar that you would do to an airfield, but it's to the back of the boat. So he he gives you a heading, and he's got you on on a super accurate radar and on the way in, he's just telling you, uh, descend at, at this, uh, you know, rate of descent. So we were coming on a glide slope and he tells you you're on glide slope, come right three, two, zero on glide slope, come left three, two, one. And, uh, basically just brings you into the the back of the carrier, just like a, a PAR to the runway. Um, cool. And then we and then we popped out, and the, and the only thing that we screwed up was we thought we were being really squared away. We got the ship's resume out and saw where all the spots were and all the markings on the deck. Well, it turns out they had just come from typhoon operations somewhere in Southeast Asia, and because of the number of helicopters they wanted to run, they redid the paint scheme on the deck to be able to <laughs> land more helicopters. <laughs> So they told us to go to spot five and we had our little diagram and the co-pilot's like right over there. And I go over there and they're like, that's not spot five. And so they, uh, <laughs> they had a guy waving and we found him and we, we ended up on the right spot, but yeah, we thought we were being all smart and we, uh, we actually messed that up. So um, the Navy had a little you know, laugh the- at Coast Guard expense. That's cool. That's cool. You know what? It's yeah. okay. <laughs> So the, the the refuel and the landing and all that was pretty uneventful. John went in and uh, John Randolph went in and uh, briefed the the doctor and the corpsman and uh, uh, I'm sorry, Robin Hamilton went in and briefed the the doctor and the corpsman and uh, John ran the hot refuel on uh, on deck out there. Um. I, I just, this stuck in my mind. We made a mistake because of how much mileage it was. You, you we had to reset our grid center on the map because you only had like a, a 250 mile radius for your screen and your GPS. So we had to reset the nav system when we got on there to account for that. But I just remember the, the least of my worries the whole night was hoisting to a 591 foot vessel. I was worried about the refueling. I was worried about the carrier stuff. I was worried about what are we going to do if we have an EP after we take off from the carrier? Um, Those were the things that were going through my mind. And like I said, I had a diagram of the ship uh, and I was like, the hoist is like the least of my worries. And and that ended up being the hardest part of the night. Um, Of course, the pictures I got from the ops center were of the ship with no containers on it. So it looked like a pretty bare ship and oh, we'll figure out a place to hoist. And of course, we got out there and the ship was full of containers. And 
none of the usual places. We we flew around in a racetrack probably about four or five times going, where are we going to do this at? And none of the usual places were available. So we started talking to the master and he's like, there's this little spot. It's about a 10 by 10 spot up front where we usually hoist from. And we went and looked at that and it was a great little 10 by 10 spot, but on both sides of it were containers stacked like, you know, five high. So we kind of had to get Robin into a, I jokingly call it a phone booth, but, um, you know, I think one of the lessons learned here for me was that, you know, things aren't always going to work the way you plan it the first time. And, uh, we came into a hover and we put, we put Robin down the first time. And, uh, you know, when you look at the geometry, we had to stay, there was a big crane and we kind of had to put the rotor disc a little bit over the crane. That's why we had to do it from like a hundred feet. And, uh, I don't think I, I articulated very well my challenges up front with this crane that was under the rotor disc and having to kind of go back and forth. And sure enough, John Randolph, who did an exceptional job that night, got Robin down on deck as I was watching this crane kind of come back towards us. And I was trying to articulate, hey, I got to come left here in about three seconds, uh, you know, stand by. And luckily, John kind of understood what was going on. And even though Robin had touched down on the deck, he wasn't going to have time to unhook. And John snatched him back off the deck so we could move left. And we kind of talked it out as a crew again. We brought Robin up, brought him in the, in the, in the cabin and said, hey, we, we need to all be aware of kind of each other's challenges. And I knew John was dealing with these you know, containers and I was dealing with this crane and we just talked it out and, and, and figured out we, we can do this. We just need to be more aware and probably get our timing better. And we talked about, about those things. And, and John did a, a masterful job. The, the second try, we went in and uh, we got Robin down, piece of cake. And uh, Robin pulled a trail line out of his vest, attached it to the hoist hook, sent it back up. We put the litter on it and sent it down. And um we we just uh, recovered the hook and then we went into a, a low fuel burn orbit around the ship. And just like my dad said, you know, we thought this was going to be, a, you know, a 10 or 15 minute evolution. And I, I don't think Robin was at the patient in 10 or 15 minutes. They had to get him down to the bowels of the ship from the bow. Yeah. Um, so it ended up being more like a 30 minute thing. But we were we were watching the fuel pretty closely. And like I said, we knew we were making money with the, the Lincoln coming towards us. So it was, it was about 30 minutes because then they had to get this guy in a litter all the way out of the bowels of the ship up to the, right. the bow again. And uh, again, I think because we had talked it out and we were aware of all of our, uh, our challenges, uh, the, the second or the third and fourth hoist to get the patient and Robin off were, uh, were pretty easy. Uh, I mean, I don't remember, I don't say they were easy, but they, they weren't, uh, we didn't encounter any real difficulties, uh, the yeah. second time. And then, uh, at that point, my, my biggest concern was we had all been up for a really long time and I was starting to feel tired and just trying to keep everybody talking and, and engaged in, in what we were doing on the way back to the Lincoln. Yeah. And we shot another uh, carrier controlled approach to the back and, and landed. And uh, I was 
pretty happy to be uh, done at that point. It had been a long day. <laughs> um, you, but yes, yeah, I do. Yes. I do remember uh, sitting with our goggles. We landed, and the guys were chaining and chalking the plane, and and I. I just remember that wave coming over the bow. And I was like, was that water that just came over the bow? And, and it was. And it wasn't because, I mean, the flight deck's 60 feet up. And it wasn't because it was a 60-foot wave. But we were going up and then down. And we went down. And one of the, the waves came over the bow. But it was still, I was, I was pretty impressed with that when, uh, when it happened. I was like, wow. So uh, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't wait a minute. Hold on. Don't, don't yeah. like undermine that. That's kind of a big deal. You just landed on an aircraft carrier that's got white water coming over and like onto the landing deck where you're going. That was a that was a lot easier than landing on any 270 I landed on. I, I'll, I'd rather I'd rather do that. Uh, uh, but. Yeah, it was, uh, and we were obviously bagged, and uh, we got to stay aboard the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln uh, for about 24 hours. I uh, I love their ship's motto, shall not perish, and I went sailing in San Diego on Saturday, and I saw the uh, Honest Abe at the dock there at North Island as we uh, sailed by, so uh, CV-72, I think, as I recall, but uh no, it was a funny discussion. I, I went up to the bridge and I talked to the captain and I was like, hey, are you guys going to hang out here for a day so we can get off and uh, get back to San Diego? And he looked me in the eye and he's like, hell no, Cross. I'm heading north as fast as we can go. I promised these guys I'd get them home for Christmas. So we were stuck on there and uh, yeah, we ended up getting off at like the uh, Oregon, California border for a lovely eight hour flight home uh like oh my 20, gosh. 24 hours later so but so it was this fun. is where the 865 comes in because they're cruising north they come in just close enough to the 65 and come in and be like what's up boys i'm in yep. <laughs> oh. they, that was actually another funny uh so i don't mean to belittle my uh my other aircraft that i flew but the uh they were steaming north and the winds were out of the west and the 65 got the patient on board. We were actually up on the flying bridge with the, the CO watching and the, the pilot requested that they come left into the wind. And the captain's like, negative, we're steaming north. I got to get these guys home. So the, so the dolphin took off and uh, did a pedal turn to the left to get into the wind and went into forward flight and kind of disappeared below the deck of the aircraft carrier. And the captain's like, what the hell was that? And Sir, they asked you to turn left because they were having some power issues and you told them no. So, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was kind of a funny discussion. You know, I can totally see that too. Uh, sir, can you move the ship left? No, <laughs> Roger that. Okay, well, adopt and overcome. This is what we do. We're Coast Guard men. Up, left, drop, go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, wow. Well done, sir. You and your whole crew. That's amazing. Was was very proud of our crew. And like I said, uh, the only – I think I'm allowed to say this now that I'm retired. The only thing I was uh, – bummed about was uh our our, our co-pilot ended up uh not getting the uh the level of award that the rest of us got and i i really thought he earned it he did a great job and i uh uh simon uh 
I, I couldn't have done it without him that night. And uh, like my dad provided for his uh, uh, cases, uh, you know, exceptional co-pilot assistance uh, helped us all be successful that night. Um, can't say enough about John Randolph. And, and like I said, he, he made some clutch decisions and clutch moves. And uh, Robin Hamilton uh, did a, a super job that night taking care of that patient and also, uh, you know, putting him down on that line between those containers that that took a lot of courage on his part. And I always was uh, impressed with that. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for saying that. And, you know, like I've said it multiple times. We do not do this job for the awards. We don't do it for you know, like the, oh, that that's good job. You know, we're, we're not here to do that. We do this job because we love what we do. And, you know, the awards and, and stuff, the recognition is great at the end. Um, and, and I'm with you. I, I, or a lot, but you guys, you actually both brought up some of your favorite cases that didn't come with any awards, but they stand out to you so well. And that's that's why I love sharing this stuff. It's, it's worth it. Uh, since I was the, the co-pilot on both of my uh, award cases, I had one of those cases like Sean had where I, when we, when we were finished with it, I finally said, I think I got this. Okay. I, was a, uh, I was a lieutenant commander, new, brand new lieutenant commander at San Francisco doing a training hoist flight uh, for a relatively newly qualified flight mechanic in San Francisco Bay. And we get a call uh, from the RCC saying there's a fishing boat sinking, uh, you know, a mile west of Point Reyes Light. Uh, we think you ought to get on up there and see what you can do. Okay, so we secured from training and just about the time we got underway, the RCC came back and said, you can stand down from that SAR case because uh, there's a Navy helicopter on scene. Well, I knew that the only Navy helicopters in the area were the uh, anti-submarine helicopters, 53s, is that what those are? That yep. were over at Alameda. Yeah. And I said, well, maybe we'll just uh, mosey on up there anyway. And they said, okay. <laughs> so I, so I, I started flying up that way. And in about five or six minutes later, I get a frantic call. We wanted to make sure you guys were on the way up to, uh, up to that sinking fishing boat because the Navy airplane is a P3. So we get up there and it's now dark. Uh, uh, seas are running. While the, the winds were relatively calm in the bay, they were running about uh, 40 knots and the seas had built to 15 or 20 feet. Wow. And, and also the boats had already sank. So we were now doing the hoist from a life raft, which is harder. Uh, oh, but, you know, I, I was confident we could do this. But of course, by this time, too, they were a lot closer to the light. So one of the things I had my co-pilot do was watch the tail rotor. I didn't need to run into those rocks. Uh, uh, so we, we make a, a, an effort to hoist. Uh, uh, it was a man turned out to be a man and his son. And we're having problems, uh, can't get the basket down. So I think we maybe did that one twice maybe. And then I, I backed off and we were gonna talk about it. And I asked the uh, 
flight mech, what the problem was. And he said, uh, well, sir, you keep going up and down. And at that point, I realized this guy's a fairly inexperienced flight mech, and he's never been outside the bay. And I explained that you know, I really wasn't going up and down. You, you, well, you may or may not know, but if you have a constant power reading, you're not, you're not going up and down. And I explained yeah. it. Pretty sure it's the ocean going up and down. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and so that kind of work. And then I also said, look, you don't have to drop this basket right on top of them. Uh, if it's easier for you, just pay out a lot of slack and we will drag the basket to the raft. And uh, that worked right away. We got, the, uh, we got the boy up and at about that time, we, we backed off and, and, and the, the, the sun is coming into the helicopter and my co-pilot says, uh, says, Commander, I think, I think we probably need to leave now. And I, and I said, what do you mean? And he says, uh, well, I, I don't think we have enough gas to get home, to get back to the unit. And I, and I, and I just looked at him and said, well, Tom, we don't have to get back to the unit. We're gonna go get this guy's dad and we're going to find a flat spot. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you could see the light go on. I mean, he was an outstanding guy. Uh, if this is going to get, I'm not going to use his name because if this is going to get broadcast, but he turned out to be a terrific pilot and Coast Guard officer. And we picked up the, uh, the dad. And then as luck would have it, when we turned uh, to go back southeast, we had a 40 knot tailwind and we did make it back to the. Uh, oh, excellent. Back so that's that's another one of my really fun cases that is awesome uh you know i man see this is why i love doing this because i i love that you know i there's a couple things that if you don't mind i'd like to talk just a little bit about it is you're you're creating options at that moment you know you just said you're gonna go find an area to land uh, okay like you have that capability we're in a helicopter like I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want you landed on I five in the middle of like downtown LA or anything. But you know, if if you have a spot to land and put it down and save the aircraft, save the people, and I'm all about it. And you know, some of the other things. Um, actually, uh, Sean, you were talking about it. If you had had too much time on scene, where you know they had to package that patient on that on that big vessel, um, you could have beat feet back to the carrier grab gas and then turn around and come back. I, me personally, I'm okay with you leaving me on scene. And if you wanted to drop me off and then leave right away so that I can take my time to package a patient, stabilize a patient. So then eight, hey, we're on our way back. We'll see you in 10 minutes. Now I'm making my way up on deck. As soon as you get on scene, now I'm ready to hoist out. Like the options that are out there, uh, I, they can be discussed. And I really, I like that. I like what you just said right there. Get a spot to land. Bring a truck. Got it. Well done. Move the basket in the surf. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I, that was that was another one of my most enjoyable cases. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing, John. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think all these things we've we've talked about is communication, and I I, I think that uh, being able to articulate to each other what's going on and 
you know, we tried to be uh, upfront with Robin. Hey, man, you don't need to be running. We, we got plenty of gas. Like, make sure you're doing the thing right. We don't need the guy to fall out of the litter after we've come this far. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, we're not in that much of a hurry. We've got gas and kind of, yeah, talking through it. Just like what my dad talked about with his flight mech and his co-pilot, you know, making sure everybody's on the same sheet of music for us when we had some challenges. I, I think that's the... The big thing when that when that when that breaks down is when there's issues. But if you're willing to raise your hand and say, I don't understand what we're doing or I don't understand the challenges you got up front, but but making everybody aware of, of what's going on within the team. Uh, and uh, I think that's important and, and, yeah. and is something that I think you develop. And I think the Coast Guard's done a lot better job. I know people sometimes laugh about. CRM, but I, I think that's been a big deal in the evolution of our crews and our levels of teamwork uh, over the years as well that, to make people comfortable to, hey, I think I have a better idea in the back from the flight mech or, or the rescue swimmer on how we could skin this cat. And those are things that, again, talking to my dad maybe early in his career weren't weren't as, uh, as welcomed maybe is the right word. Um, the aircraft commander doesn't always have all the answers or the right answers. And I think we're a lot better at, at, at being accepting and welcoming that input today. Yeah. Uh, I, I it is. Go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry, Terry. I, just, I, I guarantee that's the case. When my, during my first tour, once again, in Cape Cod, there were guys you flew with who you knew had no interest in, in your input yeah. <laughs> uh, as a new co-pilot. And then yeah. there were other guys who, who would treat you like they had interest. I don't know if they really did or not, but they, it, was a, it was a growth opportunity for you. Uh, yeah. Whereas tell, being told to sit there and shut up and talk on the radio really wasn't the growth opportunity. Yeah. That's that little placard on the, uh, on the co-pilot says, co-pilot job, sit here, shut up, don't touch anything. Yeah, that one. <laughs> That's not the brief I used. I the brief I used. You see that clock in front of you? It's a seven day clock. So every seven days, I want you to wind it. Otherwise, don't touch anything. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is great. I like that one a lot. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't actually do that. <laughs> no, I. I know. I know. But it's funny. <laughs> But I heard the story. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that you guys talk about that because, you know, one of the things that I, I like, I teach all around the world right now. And there's still places that it's like that. You, they, they don't, they don't, there's no communication between the front and the back or they just, they don't want the input. Like I've, I've had people shut me off. Like literally, oh yeah, yeah. We, we don't want to listen to anything you have to say in the back. And you're like, What? Am I part of the crew or not? You know, and so the Coast Guard specifically, I'm going to talk Coast Guard specifically, that has grown even while I was in, it was, they wanted input from the back, you know, and and I love the fact that even now they, they try to, they don't try to put a junior crew together. You have at least one or two experienced guys on that aircraft at any given time. So it's, it's solid. Yogi Pierce has a the, the ops boss I talked about from San Diego. He was an ATC mobile instructor, and he uh, he has a story that he had some Israelis come uh, come visit, and it's kind of one of those stories of excessive professional courtesy. And uh, 
they were they were showing them the simulator and it was a senior guy and a junior guy both helicopter pilots and they're giving him some emergencies and yogi said the senior guy was in the right seat and the the light on the caution advisory panel goes on and he just starts every time screaming at the junior guy look it up look it up to look in the ep red book <laughs> i mean it was just like it was it was crm at its worst and yeah. uh so that was one thing I was going to say. And then uh, you, you just said something, and I, I think it resonated with both my dad and I, and especially when we got into command and control. And that was about, uh, you know, the crew makeup and the crew mix of our, of our helicopter crews. And I, I know that was something that it was really important to me when I was an XO and, and a CEO was, was looking at the flight schedule and kind of making sure there was there was somebody in the helicopter that had some experience and it didn't it didn't necessarily need to be one of the guys up front right. uh, there were guys that I had high faith in in the back of the helicopter that I knew uh you know you got to give young guys obviously uh, uh opportunities to go out there and 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 conduct SAR and and lead uh and there were guys in the back that that had that high level of leadership that they could lead the flight from the back without the pilots up front really knowing, I guess I would yes. say. But yep. but but crew mix was always something that I thought was uh you know part of our job as as leaders and uh uh at, at the air station uh and and something that that I tried to teach youngsters who were coming into command and control positions that like the the flight schedule shouldn't happen by accident, and it's our job to to look at it with a critical eye and make sure that the crew mix is right, uh, and that we're we're not putting youngsters in bad positions uh, for things they're not ready for, and that they don't have. You know, my my example would be a a brand new aircraft commander. Uh, we don't put them in the airplane with a brand new co-pilot and a brand new flight mechanic, but that someone in the airplane has got some savvy and some ability to, to help them. You you need to make those pairings correctly. And, and that that really, I thought, was our job and what we got paid to do as command and control was figure that stuff out. I totally agree. A hundred percent. Yeah. So thank you. Um one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about, uh, Terry, if you don't mind, is that you were there for the swimmer program and when the rescue swimmer program happened, you actually had a little part of that to make that whole transition happen. Can you give us a little bit of rundown on that? Sure. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of background first. Uh, uh, the Coast Guard, Coast Guard Aviation had really wanted a swimmer program for a long time. And earlier, actually before I got there in 77, some folks at Air Station San Francisco had developed what they called a SARWIT program, where we had uh, uh, some special training at the unit level. I wasn't there at the time, but I, I learned about it. And, and they were planning on using them like rescue swimmers. And... Uh, and the information I got was that uh, somebody from headquarters probably appropriately said, uh, we'd like to have a program like that, but uh, it needs to be a service-wide program, not a, not a unit program. Uh, and then after that tour, I went to headquarters and uh, I became chief of the planning and programming 
uh, I guess we were a section in the aviation branch at the time. And, uh, you know, we raised the issue a few times and it's probably true even to this day. Uh, there's never enough money. Uh, I think I there's, mentioned earlier. It's that, the U.S. government. There's never <laughs> enough money. <laughs> Ask anybody that said, hey, we need to buy this. Ah, we don't have enough money. <laughs> well, if you, if you want to buy electric uh, vehicles, apparently there's enough money. Oh, yeah, or, absolutely. Well, <laughs> education aid for, there's enough money, apparently. So, so sorry, you probably didn't need those political statements. But uh, I um, love it. Oh, I love it. It's what everybody feels. It's all good. <laughs> So then uh, I, the Marine Electric sank with loss of, I think, just about everybody. Uh, yes. I had a good friend, Mont Smith, who flew on that case. And uh, I'm sure he, he created some issues about rescue swimmers. He was, I think, aware of some of the efforts we had made. And so we went from, OK, guys, there's not enough money. We're not going to do this. To, we need to have this program up and running by next Wednesday. <laughs> uh, that's what we call a knee-jerk reaction <laughs> and, uh, and obviously that I don't, I don't know if anybody actually said that but it was a it became a very very high priority uh and um i think bill wallace was chief of the branch at the time and he just kind of came in and said uh can you guys do this and we said you know yes sir we can and um and so we, we, we started uh, looking at it and a fellow named Dana Goward was uh, working with me there. And uh, I, I tasked him with coming up with, you know, a basic plan that we could then go forward to try to get approved. Uh, and he, and he worked with some other people in the, uh, in the search and rescue division. Uh, uh, Hugh Doherty was one. And, and there was another fellow whose name started with a C and I, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember his name, uh, but anyway, they built uh, an outstanding program, and it was going to be expensive. It required a lot of billets, and billets were very—you know—they were kind of the coin of the day. Um, and and when when we initially uh, submitted it, uh, essentially came back and said, uh, "We can't afford this. You know, you need to you need to do it. Make it smaller. Do it with fewer people." And to the best of my recollection, we took another look at it and uh, essentially made the case that this is not an initiative that should be undertaken unless we're prepared to do it right. And, and, and doing it right requires this many people. Uh, my guess is there's actually more people there than there were then. And, uh, and, and, and and they said, yes, my, my, and I was at the time I was, I guess I was lieutenant commander. So I'm sure it went a little higher and they sent a messenger over to talk to people on the hill. The people on the hill probably, you know, I got a feeling that just said, fine, tell us what you need, which was kind of something the Coast Guard wasn't used to hearing. So we moved ahead with the implementation. And uh, uh, it's one of the it's one of the prouder things that I've that I've been involved with in my time in the Coast Guard. That program has been such, so successful. So many terrific uh, Coast Guardsmen have gone into that program and retired. And yeah. they're just, just unbelievable. Sean, Sean got to live with it a lot longer than I did. Two things. Was the guy Ken Coughlin? 
That's who it was, Ken Coughlin. That's okay, exactly that was one. And then I, I just happened to I just happen to have this on my shelf. I just read it from the library. It's called Until the Sea Shall Free Them. And it's the story of the Marine Electric. It's not oh, nice. there's not much about the rescue swimmer program except for the Navy rescue swimmer, but it's an yeah. awesome book about what those guys went through and three people survived. And uh, it, it's, it's a great leadership book about leadership success and failure from the company to the union to the Coast Guard. Um, I, I highly suggest reading it. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a recommendation made to me. And it, so Until the Sea Shall Free Them by Robert Frump. It's all about the Marine Electric. Well, thank you for anyway. sharing that. I will definitely check that out. Um, that. Yeah, I, I, actually, I think that probably gave our program a boost. The uh, uh, the fact that the Navy had rescue swimmers were able to yeah. save some people, and we didn't. Right, right. And yeah. I, one of the things I think we recognized also was we ended up using like an avionics man from the H three. We put him down in a basket without proper equipment or gear, like the guy was in a flight suit and. <laughs> told him to go save people. And that, that obviously wasn't the way to do it. And we ended up actually the, I, I think it says in there, the Navy ended up needing to go back and get fuel. And they left the Navy rescue swimmer on scene to work with the Coast Guard helicopters. So right. yeah. anyway. Um, out of curiosity, because you mentioned like the uh, electronics been jumping in the water. So I've heard stories of like the H3 days before the rescue swimmer program happened where like some of the flight mechs and whatnot. And the second guy in the back of the H H three was like, Oh yeah, I'll go get them. And they would air like water taxi up and then jump in and go get them. And the co-pilot like, oh. was the first round draft pick usually to go do that. <laughs> it was really noted. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. I thought it was the other, like the, like uh, the avionics guy in the back that had to do it. Co-pilot. Nice. Yeah. The H 52, you didn't need no co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's great um all right so next question i'd like to ask oh unless you got anything else to add to that sean just like with what you've seen because you, again you guys have two totally separate um like career fields like years of between the two of you in the coast guard collectively and separately it's it's great I obviously never knew better, but I, I couldn't agree with my dad more that the, the, the value that the rescue swimmer program has added to Coast Guard aviation in terms of our capability. Um, you know, throughout my career, I, I always relied on those guys. And, and uh, to me, they just expanded what we were able to do from from just, you know, getting people out of the water to expanded medical care in the back and uh, you know, I, I was always impressed. A lot of rescue swimmers went over and above, you know, what the basic EMT training was. Uh, I, I always think we had guys in Cape Cod that would work in like the ER at Cape Cod Hospital. Um, you know, th that just always impressed me that guys, like you said, were, were wanting to better themselves and get to a higher level that they could provide for, for medical care. Uh, Brian Lobenstein is the guy I think about often that was like a high level lobs. Um, but Love yeah, Lava. just awesome stuff. Before I let you guys go, I, I would like to talk about one other thing. And that is, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this offline and that was training in standards. Um, and the difference between kind of 
we'll call it back in the day and now and the and what stuff came up and terry you mentioned you had a little story of like how that impacted training and standards to what we do today well i can just tell you my experience um i like it not long before i retired i was asked to give a talk uh to the uh aeronautical engineers sean was the sean was there i don't even remember the name of the of the uh, event, but it was in Elizabeth City. And uh, I decided to talk about uh, the professionalization of Coast Guard aviation. And so, and, 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 and I didn't mean to imply that I did any of that. A lot of the guys who did it were in that audience, by the way. <laughs> when I reported aboard my first air station, I walked in, I was told to go see the assistant operations officer. Now, before I go further, let me say this. The assistant operations officer was a fine, fine officer and an outstanding pilot. So this is in no way meant to reflect on him. But I walked into his office and uh, a couple of things struck me. One, he was in one of our orange flight suits and he had a, a caterpillar hat on. So in his nickname, <laughs> cat hat, in the cat hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all uh, right but that, that's not the important part the important part is this so i was going to be an hu-16e pilot and he hands me an old ratted dog-eared natops manual for the hu-16 okay and okay. uh and uh so i'm looking you know i'm looking at this and uh uh, and I'm starting to figure out that I guess I'm on my own here. <laughs> and, then he, and then he says, be careful what you read in there because it's all not correct. <laughs> so I'm oh, going, my gosh. Well, 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 which parts might those be? <laughs> and he said, you'll figure it out. So, so that was my, and oh, by the way, your first co-pilot flights tomorrow. So that was my, uh, my introduction <laughs> to Coast Guard Aviation. And, and then over time, I mean, the ATC mobile has already, already stood up. And uh, uh, most, I think most of that, most uh, of the uh, enlisted schools at that time, the aviation schools, I think were run through the Navy. But I watched all that grow. I watched the, uh, the training center at Mobile grow into a, an unbelievably professional training center. I got to see some of it three years later when I went through age 52 training and and it's just continued to grow over the years and and maybe the capstone at least for my career was the rescue swimmer program but i had i got to see just for a little while the way it used to be wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, talking to some guys older than me a lot of times when the SAR alarm would go off there was no duty crew assigned it was so there would be a mass rush to the airplane to uh see who was going to be the AC on the plane and they'd go off. So that's kind of part of where we came from. And, and I actually feel blessed to having been seen both sides of it. Wow. That's amazing. You know, I look at like training and stuff that we do now. It's interesting because like I've been to a lot of conferences, uh, Goodrich conference, uh, APSA conference, like there's a HAI holds uh, Heli Expo every year. You know, you have, you have a lot of places that hold conferences and 
the, like a, a standard question is like, what, what do we do for training? What do we do for minimums? What do we do? And, and you're like, man, that, that should be like the easiest thing, but it's so common knowledge to us, like Coast Guard guys, myself included, where it was just, that's what we did. Yeah. Two, two and two. And you had this, this, you had this landing, you had this takeoff. You, there are certain things you had to check the box and inside your 90 days, but it was for us, it was just so oh, I got to go get my men's got to go get my men's and, you know, keep up the standard, keep up the training. Other places that I've been to since then, they, they don't have that. They don't either not budgeted there. They don't have the capabilities. It's very interesting. So. I, and I, I just thought of this, but weren't you kind of involved on also kind of putting together the recurrent training minimums and the, the, that those syllabuses because training was kind of so haphazard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is going to, I don't want to take up too much time, but I went, I was the ops boss at air station Cape Cod. And Oh, by the way, I had just come from headquarters being the budget aviation budget guy. So I, I get up there and I notice that a lot of our uh, helicopter flights in particular, we were running about 50% of our time for training. Not that that training wasn't, uh, wasn't important, but the more I looked at it, it was all haphazard. And I thought, and, and similar in the fixed wing, but maybe a little less. And I, I just kind of had the idea that putting together a specific number of flights to cover that specific number of evolutions that you just talked about over yeah. the course of a semi-annual period might save us some training time. So uh, after I got that going, the boss, uh, Jay Crow was the CEO and he bought into it. Norm Scaria was the uh, engineering officer. He was fine with it. So we were able to take, uh, get everything done it was supposed to be done uh, in an organized fashion. So the, the training time went from something 50 or percent or over of the flight hours to between 30 and 35% of the flight hours. And uh, once, and, and then I guess somebody in Mobile figured that out and they, they kind of formalized that program uh, for the entire Coast Guard. Is that what you're talking wow. about? Yeah. You get a guy with a good idea that works and all of a sudden it's implemented into the entire Coast Guard. That's amazing. Well done. Now, now that I think about it, I think I know how it got implemented service-wide. Uh, the chief of ops uh, visited the unit. Uh, Clyde Robbins was the ops chief at the time, also an aviator, by the way. And my boss wanted me to brief him on that. So I did. So it's probably him that made the phone call to Mobile, I'm guessing. <laughs> nice. Uh, hey, uh, this guy Cross has got something going on here. We're going to need to do this. Yeah, <laughs> roger that. Okay. And boom, it happens. <laughs> Sometimes it's who you know. Just saying. <laughs> I got a guy. <laughs> Man, incredible. Wonderful. Um. Right. Uh, the only other thing I wrote in my notes here that I wanted to mention, because I, I don't think it gets enough love, and I, I tried really hard when I was in D13 to, to make this point, but I, I just can't say enough about what used to be called Advanced Rescue Swimmer School in the, uh, the kingdom that Daryl Jelikoska and, and, and that crew put together, now Advanced Helicopter Rescue School. 
Uh, the best training I ever went to in my entire Coast Guard career and something that I, I just really firmly believe needs to be uh, integrated into Coast Guard aviation in a greater degree. Um, uh, I look at, like I said, going out to a, a big C's SAR case as a young guy and having my co-pilot explain that stuff to me, I don't think is the way to do business. I, I firmly believe that uh, you know, every aircraft commander should get an opportunity to go through AHARs in their career. Um, you know, I always talked when we were at D-13 about having like a uh, heavy weather center of excellence there at, at uh, Cape Disappointment with the, the surfman training and the motor lifeboat school and, and the advanced helicopter rescue school. Um, and I just, uh, I guess I wanted to give that a plug because it's another thing I'm not sure people are aware of that, yeah. that we do. We go out and, and do high risk training in big seas and, and uh, it's a, a great training opportunity. And again, I think the best training in, in the Coast Guard and Coast Guard aviation. So again, I'll shut up, but I wanted to plug that as the last item on my note sheet here. Love it. Hey, thank you for saying that. Um, we just had Bradley Pagaj on and he's one of the instructors up there right now. And, and what they're doing is so far beyond even when I went through. And I, I went through at least twice that I remember for sure. Might be a third, but two for sure. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce back up there and, and check it out again, see what they're doing now. So you know, you know what I just saw they did this time, they had a silver fin night during the week and i saw like bruce jones and mario marini and all these they had all these yep i, I call them old timers out but uh a bunch of former co's and, and retired rescue swimmers that came out to one of their socials one night and kind of had a panel round table with the youngsters and uh i heard it was a great evening and, and uh, oh, a lot of great excellent. americans in the picture i saw so maybe that'll become a regular thing to invite older guys back Oh, it'd be incredible. Yeah. I, I, heck, I'll go all the time. I love being there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was going to take 15 seconds and, and be a little bit selfish here, if you don't mind. I wanted to make a public service announcement. So, you know, as a hobby, I'm the vice president uh, of history for the Coast Guard Aviation Association. And, and there's two big things that I do. One is the the Today in Coast Guard Aviation History social media campaign uh, that you can see on LinkedIn or on Facebook. And pretty much, you know, 99% of the 365 days of the year, we, we put something on uh, that, that is some sort of high visibility Coast Guard search and rescue case or aviation milestone. Uh, but the second thing that's really important to me is our role of valor. And that's a database of over 1,200 really high level search and rescue awards. Um, and we've grown that. It was about 700 awards when we took over about a year ago and we've got it to about 1200. But I just ask if there's folks out there that have uh, you know air medals, DFCs, silver life-saving medals, you name it, uh, go check out the database. And if, you're, if your items aren't in there, please find a way to get it to us. There's an email. Uh, on the web page. If you just Google Roll of Valor Coast Guard, it comes right up. But uh, we really want to capture those. Everybody thinks that Coast Guard headquarters has like this repository of awards. <laughs> they don't. Yeah, they this don't. Is how we, this is how we preserve this history. And I'm yeah. 
one of the things that bothers me is that there's all these great rescues from the 50s and 60s that we're never going to know about because we don't have the awards and those guys have passed away. Um, so I really am making a push for that. Uh, all we do is send us a photo of your citation. We process it, turn it into a nice PDF, and we put it up on the website, and, and then it's there. I always joke, don't be humble. It's not about you. It's about the people that come after you. And it's about the people that are flying today, understanding the standard when it comes to honor, respect, and devotion to duty and the, the, the limits that people have gone to to save others. So, uh, and it's also about that 50 years from now, when your great grandson uh, needs to do a report for sixth grade, he can look up on the role of valor and find his badass great grandpa, who was a Coast Guard aviation type, and do a report about uh, the cool stuff that that great grandpa did. So, uh, sorry to take time from your podcast, but no that's way. a passion of mine, and uh, I really feel strongly. I, uh, I I sent it to my dad, but I was the other night. I am always doing internet research, and I found some Coast Guard magazines from the 1950s, and I found like seven enlisted awards we didn't have about. Uh, you know, young helicopter guys in the infancy of helicopter aviation doing like the first night rescue on the West Coast, uh, things like that, I find extremely fascinating. So uh, it was wow. a treasure trove for me. And uh, uh, anyway, I just wanted to get that public service message out. I'm shutting up and letting you take over. No, again. no, no, no. I, I love it because I, I, I'm on board with you. And it's another reason why I like to do this podcast is because it's just there's so much cool information and great stories. And, you know, like when you read some of the awards, you're like, yeah, that was great. But what's the fine details? Like, what's the backstory? What's the what's the challenges of it? You know, like, the, the, you know, Terry, your award says you were inches from the tree. There was green stains on the blades. I'm just going to throw that out there. OK, don't make that <laughs> no. too public. Not you that, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, just I'm, I'm as a, a just as a for instance today, and, and my dad and I are both pretty passionate about this because we have a lifelong friend and, and mentor who was involved. But you know, today's Coast Guard aviation history uh, uh, post is about uh, one of the uh, eleven Coast Guard aviators that flew combat search and rescue in Vietnam. And again, I I'm not sure many Americans are aware that Coast Guard helicopter pilots shipped 3,000 miles across the globe uh, to Southeast Asia to fly combat search and rescue for the Air Force because they asked us to. Right. Um, and if you read a lot of Air Force accounts, they obviously had some very talented aviators and crewmen, but there's a lot of guys who make the statement that I think I'm alive and walking the earth today because of what Coast Guard helicopter pilots taught me while we were in Vietnam. And they were very highly respected and uh, did a lot of great work there. And you can find their awards uh, in the role of valor. Uh, and uh, again, we try to highlight that as much as possible. Which is awesome. Uh, as a matter of fact, Lonnie Mixon was one of the pilots that was over there, and he was on this podcast as well. He actually told me some of his great memorable cases um, out of uh, Detroit, up in that area, and on the Great Lakes. And you know, those are some of the ones that he remembers. You know, he talks about Vietnam a little bit uh, as well, but you know, 
the back in the old school days, same thing. So today, first of all, Lonnie Mixon is a great American. Uh, and uh, yeah, today, actually, I, I haven't posted this yet, but Lonnie Mixon, and I believe the gentleman's name was Owen Seiler. He eventually became commandant of the Coast Guard, I think. They flew the last HU-16E out of Air Station Dinner Key today in 1965. He, uh, Lonnie called me because I'm always looking for historical things. So he called me a couple of weeks ago and told me about that. But uh, he was pretty <laughs> proud of that. So I'm going to post that later today. Yes! You mean the What's last that? one? Dinner key because I was flying HU-16s in 1976. I mean, when they left to, to go to Air Station Miami. Oh, I got it. Okay. Good. So he he flew the last aircraft out of Air Station Dinner Key when they went to Opalaka. <laughs> so he was he was extremely proud. He called me to tell me that. So I I, I took copious notes. Oh, that's great. In Vietnam, he was proud of flying a 16. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, he was the, well, he was flying the Jolly Greens out there too, the big ones. So, yeah. And those, yeah, those guys were, were on point with some of their stuff. Um, yeah. No, thank you for plugging that. Absolutely. I'm, hey, let's get as much history as we can because, you know, the, the stories need to be told. And that's, that's why I love doing this. Besides, I, I love just hearing all these stories anyway. So it's, it's good for me, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you why, you guys, I, I know you got to get out of here. We've had an amazing talk tonight. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, and just, just the stories, the, the rescues, the, the knowledge, I, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. So the next time I get a chance to get back to the States, I'll, I'll call you guys and we'll go out and kick back a beer. Well, where are we going to be? Awesome. Okay. City because we live on <laughs> you know what? I'll come find you <laughs> alright if you do that I'll buy the beer done All right. I'll, I'll see you soon I, I, you're in my calendar already and you don't even know <laughs> gentlemen again thank you so much have a great night and uh, and I'll catch up with you soon thanks and with thank that, you ladies, Jason oh you guys are very welcome and with that ladies and gentlemen we are Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com that's jason at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q.com you can also check us out on our web pages therealrescue.com our facebook page and our instagram page at therealrescue again a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today always remember when that star alarm goes off those in distress are praying for a miracle they are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.